This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. with why I love the hour you're about to hear so much. I've tried to, you know, I'm a great student of radio. I've uh, spent my whole life listening to it and the vast majority of my life thinking about it, what would work, what doesn't work. And I get such a buzz out of the hour you're about to hear. And a lot of listeners tell me the same thing, and I've kind of been trying to figure it out. What would I tell a radio consultant as to why this hour works? And I think I figured it out. For the next hour, you're about to be guided by a man who's certainly very knowledgeable, obviously has a very, very great, deep radio-sounding voice. Not me, don't worry. But... The thing that I think makes this so hour so uh, this hour so special and so unique and really unlike anything else that you hear in the radio anywhere in the country is that it's the only hour that really makes you feel like you're learning. You're getting almost in some cases I feel like a, a collegiate level of education about what's happening in the cosmos, but it also encourages a childlike curiosity, a childlike sense of imagination, the same kind of wonderment, the same sort of curiosity that you had staring into the night sky when you were a little boy or a little girl or a little, you know, uh, non-binary person. You have when you listen to our bi-weekly. The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasars galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky, a.k.a. Steve Cates. All right, it is once again time for Cosmic Conversations with Steve Cates, uh, or as we call him, Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer, also a podcaster at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, it's great to talk with you. I can't believe it's been two weeks already. Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to the listeners out there. Halloween's still for us toward the West Coast, and welcome to what? The new month, November one. Jam-packed, of course, Frank, with information as we talk about the great realms of what? Astronomy, space, aviation, and weather with our official Cosmic Conversations. Good to be with you. What was your co- What is your costume since it's still Halloween out there in Arizona? 
Well, we had an event here. Actually, it's ending. We're out up here in Sedona at a beautiful resort with the telescopes out. So I was a partial creature from the Black Lagoon, one of my favorite movies <laughs> of all time. The mask, uh, after I took it off, obviously you can't show the stars and you know have people not run away from you. So I left it on the table by the telescope, and it has an eerie kind of glow unto itself. But uh, it's a great way to, to celebrate. Uh, over here, we've been looking at the planet Jupiter, which is just amazing for everybody listening in our Cosmic Conversation episode here. It's amazing, Frank. This planet right now is actually coming closest to the Earth that we probably as humans would be able to see in our, in our lifetime. So all throughout the vast audience of this radio show, if you're out and you have clear skies, or you will be out to have clear skies to look, that big bright white beacon of light that for some may be almost to the south, high up into the sky, and for many others still lingering into the southeast sky. But as we all know, the biggest, the best, the god of gods, as they called it, Zeus, this planet, Frank, right now, 370,190,200 miles as we count down its close approach. So if you miss this, this is interesting. Get set for October the 16th of the year. You ready for this? 2485. So I think we should take advantage of it. <laughs> so um, a couple of quick, uh, by the way, if people have questions, they can call in. We'll try and get to as many as we can. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. If people are looking to the sky and hoping to see Jupiter, how do they know it's Jupiter and how do they know which direction to look? Or does that vary depending on where in the country they're listening to us? Well, great questions, Frank. And as I mentioned, for the most part, for wherever you're listening, east coast to west coast, the planet will still be high up into the south or high up almost on the meridian, meaning the south. But it's about 45 degrees, almost halfway up in the sky. It is the brightest object that you'll be able to see in the sky if you look both directions right now. Jupiter, this beautiful white color, almost looks like it's made of like snow or something, snow white in color. But upon further inspection, for those that are fortunate enough to even have a pair of binoculars, and many people do, you can take those and do what Galileo did, as we said many times before. January 7th of 1610, he observes with his crude telescope, not much larger than the paper towel tube that surrounds the paper towels that you may have on the you know kitchen wall. Yeah. And he observes these three objects. He observed three, what he called them, stars. And then on the successive night, he observed the next one. So these are the satellites Io. Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are many mistresses of the great Zeus. Obviously, he had a wandering eye, as they said in mythology. But what's interesting is those with the telescope, if you look right now, on the left side, Ganymede is farthest from the planet. You can't miss it. Io is closest on the left side to the planet. And then on the right side, Europa is closest. And then Callisto. So you have almost like four specks visible. And I'm talking telescope now. But binoculars will still show you some of the moons because, Frank, this is fascinating. The moon Ganymede is so unbelievable. It's larger than the planet Mercury. So Jupiter, obviously, is such a massive object. But on the dark side, if you were to weigh yourself, I'll use my weight. You know, I'm about six foot, six foot one. I weigh 230 pounds. I could probably lose a little. But we weigh 2.53 times our weight if we are able to go to the cloud tops of that massive planet. So 
I think we're going to stay here, don't you think, and observe it from here for now. It's probably a safe bet. (laughs) 800-848-9222. We're going to get to your calls in a moment. Steve, I did have a question for you. One one, uh, of the sources that, you know, I, I don't know if you're like this, but I read the newspapers, but most of my conventional newspaper reading is done on the weekend. During the week, for the most part, I use these newsletters as my newspapers. Mm -hmm. I I subscribe to more newsletters that I can count. And going through these newsletters via email, that's kind of my way of reading the paper on a daily basis. And one of the newsletters that I really enjoyed that covered a lot of the subjects that we cover, and it gave me a lot of ideas for things that I would bring up with you, was the Axios Space Newsletter. And apparently the person that writes that newsletter is leaving, and uh, I don't know if they're going to find someone else to do it, but at least for now it's on hiatus. And I'd love to find some good space newsletters or uh, that can fill the void that I'm now going to experience with that Axios Space Newsletter going away. Do you subscribe to any newsletters that deal with this kind of thing, and can you recommend any? Well, here's the answer. I think it's a shame that she's leaving, and I forget her name. Forgive me for not knowing I believe the it's uh, Miriam Kramer. Miriam Kramer, I think. Yes, thank you. Yes, I follow her as often as people out there can pull that up with all the other Axios, you know, b- bits of information. But no, I don't subscribe to any one specific one. But I think in her past newsletter, and I, I know I don't have it in front of me. I don't have a computer available. Maybe you might have the liberty of seeing this. She recommends some other good sources out there. But for regular news, this is an interesting website that I always recommend people go to, kind of a newsy type of thing. It's spaceweather.com. And the reason I mention that is Dr. Tony Phillips does a very, very good job of keeping us abreast of all the near solar system things that are happening. And he does it in, in I think, such an excellent way. And I give him kudos to him. That particular website, I think, is really good. Not necessarily just a newsletter, if you want to call it that, But let's hope that I'm sure hopefully somebody will come back with Axios to fill us in on uh, current space news, because it seems like what, Frank? It it never ends. I mean, this stuff we could talk, what, for a whole six hours, like Curtis. We could probably do, uh, what, six hours from uh, midnight to morning and like yourself. There you go. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hi, Joe. Yes, Steve. I have two quick questions. Uh First is, I know you're familiar with the fighter jets and their engines. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just curious about the burn rate uh, of those engines at the higher speeds as opposed to the burn rate uh, at a conventional passenger jet and how the engines might differ. And then my second question would be atmospheric pressure, what Mm -hmm. that actually is in relation to pop-up storms which they sometimes say there's going to be a thunderstorm. But from what I understand, those storms only coalesce a half hour before they happen. So how predictable are they really, you know, on the earth? Those thunderstorms? Let's go to the first part. And first of all, good morning, Joe. Thank you for your questions. Yeah. Let's go to the first one and, and go, go for that. When we talk about fighter jets, they're going to consume tremendous amounts of fuel the lower they would be in the atmosphere, especially if they're trying to push toward, you know, supersonic speed. That's why in many cases when aircraft like military aircraft would allege to see, now we have to use the right word, right, Frank, UAP, unidentified aerial. That's right. They would do a burn rate so that their, you know, afterburners are fully lit so they can get to speed. So obviously the simplest answer is these jet fighters, if they're going to maintain the limited fuel they have, 
Because remember, most aircraft today, military, have to do what's called aerial refueling. So the simple thing is, the lower they are in the atmosphere, if they're going to burn more fuel at a faster rate, they would burn more fuel than they would at a higher higher level in the atmosphere. But if you have an aircraft, and I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, take a look at the F-22. Because what's making that aircraft so sophisticated is it flies with a concept called supercruise. So it has the ability to use the most efficient way of its fuel in something which would you have to really take a look at this and get a better detailed description called supercruise. But as far as the second part of this with atmospheric pressures, we do know, and I don't know how soon we know the atmospheric pressure drops during ma- major storms, but to keep it very simple and to give you the best answer possible in the shortest possible time, the lowest pressures that we get are in toward the center of all these storms, obviously vis-a-vis hurricanes and cyclones. So on the world, I don't have the exact number right now, but the lowest atmospheric barometric pressures are going to be obviously internal to the storm center. And that, of course, creates some amazing changes. You could be, let's say, 500 miles away from the center of the hurricane and have a dramatic, Mm. dramatic difference which is off the charts. I appreciate the question. Yeah, very good question. Thanks. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. You mentioned that uh, Jupiter is going to be uh, as close to us as it's going to be for the next, I guess, 400 years or so, or thereabouts. Right. The, one of the images that I saw from the James Webb uh, telescope had to do with a jet stream over Jupiter's mm-hmm. equator, uh, equator. For those of us that may not remember 10th grade Earth science, Steve, remind us what a jet stream is and uh, tell us what's the big deal about seeing a jet stream in Jupiter. Well, let's start on the Earth. We call these jet streams. Pilots know this very well. You could be flying, let's say, east to west, west to east. Let's say you're flying from the west United States, say Los Angeles to New York. A pilot would, if they want to try to get as much speed as they can and conserve fuel, try to find one of these atmospheric rivers. You know, imagine that if you could see in 3D, there'd be this atmospheric river, like a long snake, of course, undulating, changing its you know height as it moves around the Earth due to the fact that there's low pressures and high pressure areas. But what's interesting about this, you know, these jet streams are interesting, but now let's go to Jupiter. This is on a mega scale now. Remember, Jupiter, right, is 88,000 miles in diameter. It doesn't have a solid surface. It's all made of clouds, ammonia, hydrogen, methane. Its day is so incredible. You know, we know now here, and I know in here in Arizona, the day a few days ago was what, like somewhere around 11 hours and 40 minutes, maybe a little less. But Jupiter's day is only nine hours and 55 minutes if you look at it from the equator. So what we have, do the calculations, you're talking winds that are going, you know, four to 5,000 miles per hour. And on Jupiter, there's these undulating streams of low pressure and high pressure made up of different chemical constituents. But by far, the most prolific storm that we've ever, ever seen on Jupiter is simply the Great Red Spot. And I remember, Frank, when I lived back in the New York area in the 1970s as a boy, I had a small telescope. And I remember this in my mind. It's still there. Observing the Great Red Spot back in like 1970 and 71, it really looked brick red. So what's happened on Jupiter, we thought for a while we were going to lose the Great Red Spot because it shrunk a bit. And these atmospheric currents like jet streams were shaving off some of the top of it. We still don't understand what that is. But imagine a cyclone or hurricane twice the diameter of the Earth. Frank, the winds on Jupiter are just hellacious. 
it's really an object that if you put it in perspective, many people say to me, well, wait a minute, isn't Jupiter like a star and pre-create, you know, it, it wants to be a star? Well, it might if you look at it that way, but it would need 80 times more the mass for it to start the fires or even the fuels. Fires is a bad word because it would be too hot. The fusion reaction, you would have to have 80 times the mass of what you have now, but the weather on Jupiter would be very bad. And even worse, Frank, in closing, even if we got close to Jupiter, the radiation levels would just kill us in, in a very short order. It's a planet that's great for, you know, balancing out gravity in the solar system, but probably still best, as I repeated before, maybe best to watch it from here and enjoy, enjoy the show while you can. Uh, you're probably right on that one. 800-848-9222. Max is in Manhattan. Max, what's your question? Dr. Sky, thank you for taking my call. And uh, I was, uh, good morning, good morning. Um, Wouldn't you say that we're running behind schedule here if China and India and uh, other countries are going to make it to uh, Mars or the moon? And uh, we have plenty of pictures up there. We see that there are things up there that shouldn't be up there, like a pyramid, like the DNM pyramid. So we're running behind, and uh, China's going to just lap us in no time. Yes. Max, I think you're right. Great, great observations. Great, great questions or great comment. But here's the situation here. Remember, folks, NASA's run by a very strict budget. Office of Management and Budget just came out. I know, Frank, we talked about this Mm -hmm. last time. Max, you may not have heard this, but they're doing a serious internal review. It's like they're auditing everything. They're finding out that Artemis, the moon rocket that we want to get, you know, it's a great rocket. But it's way over budget, which means it's probably going to have to have some cutbacks. And, oh, no, here we go again, guys, built by the lowest bidder kind of thing. I mean, that's the way things have been in the past. But it's very interesting. I think China, if we look at it in in all the things they're doing, you know, as much as we may not like the concept of communist China, whatever that is for many people, and it could be very serious, you know, military wise, military wise. But the thing is, they got to give them credit. They're really zooming in on so many fronts all at once. They may get to the moon way before us. The Indians, of course, with the Chandrasekhar, the actual uh, you know, lunar lander that they had at the South Pole of the moon, great kudos to them. But unfortunately, that little lander was only meant to just run by solar power for a while. I think we're still a long way off. But I think of all our countries, it's either going to be uh, China or something that Elon Musk is going to pull off or maybe Jeff Bezos to get us there sooner. Thanks, Max. And since you mentioned Jeff Bezos, he's one of the three space billionaires that have gotten a lot of attention. Obviously, you just mentioned Elon Musk, the third being Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. And uh, evidently, he's now revealed his new lunar lander. What is this? Does it at least have a cool sounding name? When are we going to get some information from this? What's the story with the Bezos lunar lander? Well, this is great, Frank. We haven't talked about what Jeff Bezos is doing. It's very interesting here. His new project, which he just revealed to uh, Bill Nelson, you know, the, the director of NASA. This is interesting. It's called the Blue Moon Lunar Lander. How appropriate. And it's, it has a unique design. It's supposed to fly to the moon, at least a test mode, in the next three years. But he demonstrated this new lander at the engine production facility that they have in Huntsville, Alabama. The new lander is large by the Apollo-era standards. And they're going to take advantage of the payload bay in the next generation of the Bezos rocket, which is something we haven't seen yet, called the New Glenn rocket. Now, this for this particular lunar lander, so people can see it on the Internet, it's kind of cool. It's known as the Mark I variant of the Blue Moon lander. And it can deliver, at least that's what they're telling us, some 6,000 pounds of cargo to the moon 
but it's going to have to be fueled with liquid hydrogen. You know, uh, well, we're, we're talking about something different here. Liquid hydrogen is probably the main propellant that he's using, whereas you know Elon Musk is using liquid methane. But it's going to require that they have some sort of refueling capability in lunar orbit. And he, that is Bezos, develops these really cool engines called BE-7s. So the first test, as I mentioned, hopefully in a couple of years. Uh, this is exciting because he's won one of the bids, I guess, uh, to develop a lunar lander. But the problem is we have to be able to build something else, Frank, that's out there in lunar orbit, which will be the Gateway Space Station. Because that is the stepping stone. In other words, you go to the moon from Apollo 8 days to future missions to the moon to orbit and land, like we did with Apollo, to the surface of the moon. We still need the ability now to have a way station, and that happens to be a space station around the moon, so that, God forbid, something happens. You at least have a place to secure yourself, refuel, maybe take a shower, you know, call home and tell everybody you're fine. But this probably, I mean, I don't want to be negative ever, and I always want to be positive, but the realistic truth on this when asked, so many people ask this question, I don't think we're going to do a lunar, manned lunar landing by 2025. I think this is going to be probably even, and I'm trying to be optimistic, maybe 2028 or 2029 at the earliest, because of many of the things we've talked about. The technology is there, but we have to test it and make sure it's safe for humans and that it, and that it works. You know, you mentioned when you had a crude, I don't know if that was the word you used, but a simple telescope as a boy. What age do you think, obviously every child is different, but what age do you mm-hmm. think is generally appropriate for getting a telescope for a, a little boy or a little girl that might be interested in things like that? Well, Frank, it's probably one of the best questions I've ever heard, and I'm really serious because, you know, not just talk about me, but the telescope age that I think is, is when a child starts to have curiosity. Let's say they have a little book on, on the stars and the little children's books are so cool. I give a lot of those out to our – we do cruises on a lake and the families come up. And we give these little things so kids can obviously be the scientists. But the age, I don't know. It's really up to a parent. I mean, obviously, if the child can walk and they can start to talk, you know, maybe the book comes in handy. But I remember, you know, a lot of my friends who have children, I never had them, you know, that's sad. I never had any. But – the children that we know, I'd say around six or seven years old, that curiosity really starts to kick in. And maybe even earlier, who knows, maybe some five-year-olds. My goodness, it looks like they had genius mentality when they showed me how to use a, an iPhone. when I, <laughs> I didn't know all the buttons, bells and whistles. So maybe the earliest when a parent sees that, to get them interested in uh, what they can see. You know, binoculars are cool for little kids, too. They use both eyes. It makes sense. All right. Um, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. If you have questions, we're going to try and get to as many as we can. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. There is yet another near-Earth asteroid that we've been talking about that may have kind of a surprising history. We're going to get into it in just a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight as we have our cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Learning to Fly by Pink Floyd. We're talking about all sorts of things that go on in the sky as part of our bi-weekly or semi-monthly conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you're interested in any of the subjects we're talking about, you really ought to subscribe to the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. You can go to any podcast app and just search Dr. Sky Experience. Hit the subscribe button. It'll automatically be downloaded to your wireless device whenever there are new episodes. Or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And, by the way, there's a lot of subjects that have nothing to do with space. Some really interesting interviews, some interesting stories, a lot of interesting subjects that, um, if you're a fan of interesting conversation, you would uh, really enjoy. All right, uh, Steve, yesterday was Halloween. I passed Good. quite a few Beetlejuice costumes, <laughs> and now I understand that uh, we have a major update on not the Michael Keaton character Beetlejuice, but Beetlejuice of a- another variety. What's happening with Beetlejuice? Well, Beetlejuice is this amazing armpit star in the constellation of Orion the Hunter. And that constellation will be rising soon for a good part of the listening audience, or is already in the sky, depending where you are. This star, about 500 light years away, is a massive red supergiant. Now, if you were to take the size of the sun, let's say the sun now, the diameter is 865,000 miles across. So let's say that the sun, for our discussion here in Theater of the Mind radio, is the size of an orange in your hand. If you were to put that, meaning the sun, that orange, which is a replicant of the sun, next to Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse might be the size of a six-story building as you place that orange right in front of the building. Now, there's a perspective. So what is the star? At star's age, we know that they use up, just like the sun will, they use up from the conversion of hydrogen to helium. The sun uses, you know, so many millions of tons per, per second. But as they get older, they start to, like many things, you know, like the Earth is more oblate at the equator. It's a little rounder down there. We find out that they start to consume heavier metals, let's say. They, they, they can't fuse hydrogen because it runs out. So they start getting carbon and they start getting heavy metals. So what happens? They start to expand. They lower the temperature, per se, and they expand. So let's say what, happened, what may happen to Betelgeuse right now, it could go what we call supernova. Because in a trillionth of a second, if something goes offline in that fusion process, the star will collapse, and then it will explode as a supernova. What they think is happening over the last couple of years, and I've been watching this, we used to fly when NASA had the 747 called SOFIA. It was a joint project between a German space agency and NASA. We would fly with them out of California, go up for 13 hours in this beautiful 747 that looks like this big military plane, and it has a 100-inch telescope on board. And yes, they opened the door and we're in the you know, compartmental section so we don't get blown out of there. But we were observing in this nighttime Betelgeuse from 47,000 feet. And what they were seeing was it was dimming. So astronomers said, oh, wow, maybe this means this is the prelude to a Betelgeuse going supernova. Well, we find out that that may not be the answer because what we think is happening is that it's a slow burn to its final days. But maybe we don't know that either. So what they think the dimming was caused by is large gas material, dark clouds, 
we're seeing obscuring Beetlejuice. Now, is that a prelude to Supernova? But if and when it does happen, can you imagine, Frank, in, on your show, if all of a sudden the news became breaking news, that on the other side of the world, this a star known as Beetlejuice has gone supernova. It could flare up to the brilliance of a half the brilliance of a full moon. Now, that's not an exaggeration. And it could last anywhere from months to a year. So if I can't, I can't think of anything that might bring the world together, imagine seeing a symbol in the heavens that big, that powerful. But the good news is, 500 light years away, we're not in really any harm's way. But if that star happened to be as close as Alpha Centauri, let's say that star system over four light years away, gamma radiation from that could indeed do something uh, bad to the Earth. So we're lucky in a way. The simple answer, if I had less than 10 seconds, Betelgeuse is eventually going to go supernova. We don't know when. We have a watchful eye on it. And guess what? We'll keep you posted on these cosmic conversations. Oh, boy. That, that's quite a tease. A supernova Beetlejuice. Wow. 800-848-9222. Frederick is in Brooklyn. Hello, Frederick. Yes. Uh, good evening. Um, good morning. Um, um, Frank, okay. Uh, uh, my question is um, to Dr. Sky. Um, I didn't, uh, didn't I hear um, it reported already that there was a... a uh, Apollo moon landing by the United States Space Agency. Was there already a manned moon landing Frederick, by the Apollo mission? Frederick, just so I, I'm clear on your question. So the question is the Apollo, uh, the Apollo moon landing missions, the Apollo moon landing missions. The question is, did they really occur? Is that your question? Yeah, did it wasn't there an actual um, um, space landing mission by that? Got it. Okay, so that's the craft, okay um, to the moon. Got it, Frederick. Okay, well, yes, uh, Steve, I'll let you uh, handle this yeah, one. Sure. Well, good morning, Frederick. Your question is great. Yes, I believe strongly by meeting and many and talking to many people in the space agency, including the astronauts, some of them that went there. The evidence that I can say right now is very simple. We brought back collectively over the Apollo program over 840-ish pounds of lunar material. And not being funny, we didn't have any delivery service like UPS or FedEx to send it. Obviously, we had to go get it. But more empirical information or evidence is this. If you take a look at the spacecraft images from a thing called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, just remember the LRO, it has imaged every one of the landing sites, and it shows us definitively the descent module, remember when the Apollo lander you know, went on the moon and they walked around and gathered up their rocks, they took off in the upper stage. So the descent module, Frederick, is still there. It's even got enough good imaging to see the footprints. I know this sounds crazy. From altitude, you know, this is maybe 20 miles above the moon. This camera is that good. And it also found, uh, Frank and Frederick, the tracks of the lunar rovers that were there and even sees the location where they are. And it all seems to make sense. But I believe we went there. They don't pay me to say that, right, Frank and Frederick? Right. But it's, it's, it's information that, we, you know, more, more people tell me they believe it than not. And that's exactly, Frederick, uh, some of the information. We went there, and I met many of the people who I shook their hand, and I think they didn't go to a Hollywood studio to do that. I really think they went there. <laughs> that's uh, that's Steve, the way I look at it. Speaking of uh, the moon, what's this I hear about an asteroid that might have been once a part of the moon? Well, this is an interesting story, and I pulled this out of thin air. No, it's something that we've been following for years, but think about it this way. In 2006, in Hawaii, there are so many of these telescopes that are up at high altitude. 
But there's one called PANSTARS, and the acronym is for a telescope that has like a robotic camera. And, you know, if you think you're fast at doing something, you know, as far as, let's say, a robot that can, can do and serve food in the future faster than we can make it if you have many, many you know, guests and customers. This telescope, PANSTARS, zooms around the sky and takes pictures and can move. It found this little object called a quasi-satellite. This is what they believe that it is. It's a little object about maybe the size of a Ferris wheel, 150 feet, maybe to 200 feet in diameter. But it gets around the Earth in an orbit where it's locked on to the Earth. So if you think we just have the moon as our only satellite, we also have this little object which moves around this orbit of the Earth. Now, it's probably been in this orbit many, many millions of years, but we've been saying that it's probably been trackable for 300. Now, here's the name, and I, and I want to apologize to our Hawaiian friends that if I pronounce this wrong, please forgive me. It's Kamo o Alewa. And where that word comes from, they say it's part of the Hawaiian chant. So things with the telescopes in Hawaii, they, you know, as rightfully so, the indigenous people there, they name many of these objects in honor of these people or their cultures. So the interesting part about this, Frank, is that it's not going to hit the Earth. It gets maybe as close to us as 9 million miles. Remember, the moon's average distance from the Earth is about 240,000 miles. And I was talking with John Katsimatidis on, you know, on his program for the weekend. And we were talking about something very interesting. I mentioned if you had a chance to drive to the moon, let's say people did drive 60 miles an hour, which they don't, it would still take you like 173 days to drive to the moon. And if you decided to walk, which the average speed, I don't know, I, I try to walk faster, but maybe sometimes not. Let's say you walk three miles an hour. It would still take you 7.3 years to walk to the moon. So why am I bringing that up? Because if you look at the perspective of this little object, it's 9 million miles away. But the bottom line, the, the big news story on this is, the one tagline would be, Earth has a quasi-moon, or maybe a few of them, but they think it actually came from the moon itself, meaning in the past, we know the moon had a great bombardment. Look at the front of the moon as you see the near side. Not to offend the you know Pink Floyd fans, the other side is not the dark <laughs> side, it's the far side, but not to be, and, and I love Pink Floyd too. But here's the deal. If you look at the front face of the moon, the near side, you see these dark areas on there, the mare, the old seas of lava. But if you look at the far side, it gets light. You know, people think, oh, it never gets light. It sure it does. But it's so cratered. So in the great bombardment in the universe and solar system's creation, there must have been these massive objects that hit the moon. I mean, you wouldn't want to be living there by any – even if they gave you the land, you wouldn't want it. But the thing is, some of that material that struck the moon, they, astronomers and space geologists, believe that this object, the little tiny thing, the quasi-moon, could be a part of the moon that caught up and now is in Earth orbit. How do they know this? They analyzed Apollo 14 rocks, and they took a spectrum. That's when they take a look at this thing. They kind of look at a spectrum to see what it's made of. They haven't gone there yet. They say it's reminiscent of the same type of composition as lunar rocks. And guess what? We were talking before about China going maybe to the moon. Frank, they have a lunar mission that's going to head to this little object in probably two years again. They're moving fast, and they're going to try to scoop up or analyze this object probably once was a piece of our friendly moon. Wow. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Adam is in Queens. Hi, Adam. 
Yeah, hi. Uh, good evening. Uh, I want to ask the, the astronomer if he has any proof that there is intelligent life other than just, you know, DNA material in the universe besides the human beings on Earth. Very good question, Adam. The answer emphatically at this point is no. And the search continues. I mean, there once was a time back in the 1970s when radio astronomers had this detected. It was detected, I think, in one of the universities, I think one of the colleges in Ohio. Forgive me for not having the name of the college. But it was called the WOW. People can just Google it, the WOW, W-O-W, WOW signal. So an astronomer who was on duty listening to the cosmos or looking for certain objects saw this pattern that seemed like it was out of the ordinary. What does that mean? You know, does, is it a different hiss? Is it a different sound? They, these astronomers actually looked at something and said, wow, that little burst of information seemed as if it came in some sort of a code. You know, why, why do we not think it's anything else? I don't know. But, Adam, this is interesting. We don't have any clear detectable sign other than doing these spectra. Like, if you look at these stars that are, I mean, planets, excuse me, that are around different stars, we know there's a star system called TRAPPIST-1, and it has these seven moons. And many of those little moons are in an area we call habitable zone, where life theoretically exists. But we haven't no, yet found, no, the answer is emphatically no, any specific answer to that question. And that's why it's so exciting to keep searching, don't you think? I, I certainly do. Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, my guest is... Dr. Scott, you know, you mentioned those uh, radio waves, radio signals. There mm-hmm. was a headline I came across last week that astronomers have detected radio signal, a, a radio signal that took 8 billion years to reach Earth. And the, this flash of radio waves that was first discovered in June of last year is apparently the oldest known instance of a phenomenon known as a fast radio burst. What's the big deal here about this fast radio burst? And could that radio signal be indicative of some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, I hate to be the you know the, the bearer of bad news on this one, Frank. This energy that's coming out, these gamma ray bursters or the description you gave, kind of similar, maybe not. What am I talking about here? The distance thing is what makes everybody get excited in the astronomy world. Because if the universe is 13.77 billion years young, and this comes from allegedly, what, 7, 8 billion light years distant, the energy source on this, you know, I'd like to meet those people or those, you know, creatures, whatever they are, the life form that generated something in a burst of a millisecond that had more output energy than the sun puts out in a couple of years, that to me is off the chart. So I don't think it's coming to us as a signal. I may be wrong. Okay, I'm not always right on a lot of things, of course, like many of us. But I don't think that necessarily indicates some sort of life. What's exciting, again, the headline thing, I think, that makes people get excited in the astronomy world is that it's so far away. So what? the question becomes this. What could have caused that energy source to generate that much power at a time when the universe was still, I hate to use the word, in shambles. In other words, it really wasn't fully formed as it is today. So that's really the bizarre thing. But in my estimation, probably not a signal of intelligent life. But hey, like I said before, wouldn't it be great to meet those folks to show us, you know, how do we harness that energy to use it for our own good purpose? Yeah, great question. Fred is in the Bronx. What's your question, Fred? Oh, good evening. Uh, good evening. I have, I have, 
question about the space elevator, and uh, actually it's two questions. Mm-hmm. One is, uh, in order for this uh, elevator to work, would the satellite have to be geostationary? And yes, it would. Yes, it would. Yeah. And, and here's the interesting thing. If it wasn't, it would be kind of hard to catch it. You might be able to develop that elevator to get to the near part of space. But the problematic thing is, how would you capture something like that? Because remember, we're sitting on the ground here, which seems like we're not moving. But obviously, in space, these mm-hmm. objects are rolling around in space at 17,000 plus miles per hour. That's probably something, Fred. I'm sorry to jump ahead of you there, but that's the answer to that part of it. Oh, the other question I have is, in theory, yes. If you were to travel on an elevator up to a satellite, would you have to reach escape velocity or not? No, you wouldn't in that sense because you're going here. Here's what's happening. Even though it seems like you're going up the path of the elevator tube, let's say, you're obviously not going, you know, it's different. You're doing it at a slower ascent rate than you're pulling yourself up with a rocket. But the problematic thing with that is they're trying to use the technology, the, these nano-thread technologies. And I read about this and had an interview on one of my shows, Frank, that I think that, you know, Fred would be interested in hearing. The problematic thing with the space elevator is to develop the tensile strength of the material that you would need to be able to construct that. And they're talking about things that are way stronger, whatever that is, than carbon fiber or things of that nature. Because how do you keep the thing taut without it snapping? That's the issue. Fred, you bring up some of the most interesting things. Uh, Let's hope someday, I don't think anytime soon, that you and I and Frank and listeners out there can simply just put in our credit card and uh, go visit us in uh, 62 miles up above the earth and come back as if we just went in the elevator. (laughs) That would be cool indeed. (laughs) All right. right. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue in a moment with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to hear more of these sorts of conversations, go on to whatever your podcast app of choice is and just search The Dr. Sky Experience. Please give it a nice rating, a nice review, and that really does help spread and increase the visibility of uh, of the show. And feel free to do the same for the other side of midnight while you're at it. Cosmic Conversations, more coming your way straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright, cause I only have eyes for you. And the moon may be high But I can't see a thing in the sky Cause I only have eyes For you I don't know if we're in A garden Or on a crowded avenue You 
are here and so am I Maybe millions of people go by But they all disappear The great Frank Sinatra I can't think of many people that have a better voice than Frank Sinatra. One of them may be on the phone with me right now, though. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is an expert in all things that involve looking up. We're going to get back to your questions in just a moment. Steve, I wanted to ask you about one development that I thought was pretty exciting. Uh, An airship developed by one of Google's co-founders was cleared to fly by U.S. regulators. This 400-foot-long Pathfinder 1 is going to be the largest aircraft since the Hindenburg, and it's going to have a top speed of around 75 miles per hour. How big of a deal is this, Steve? Well, I think it's a very big deal. I mean, if people study and go back to the days of Hindenburg and Graf Zeppelin, we see what the Germans did in producing these massive, gigantic, look like a big cigar floating in the sky. Imagine something almost 800 feet long. But the ability, that is, excuse me, to lift heavy lift loads into, you know, the atmosphere they have great purpose on this, and the technology is so much better. In those days, obviously, they had, you know, just put their thumb out there, and hopefully the wind is in the right direction. But today, you could utilize these particular, uh, you know, aircraft, if you want to call them that, you know, airships, more appropriate, to do some heavy lifting. Uh, they have the capability of working in construction sites and also in the world tourism. That'd be awesome to be able to replicate something like that of the Goth Zeppelin, and the people study that. It made some interesting passes around the world and it made the cruises. And it actually crossed the United States, I believe, uh, as it went worldwide in Los Angeles to New York in 1929. Imagine what that site might have been from people who didn't know what the heck an 800-foot thing. It must have looked like an unidentified aerial phenomenon object. But, Frank, if I may just digress for a moment. You mentioned the Dr. Sky experience. I just wanted to mention to people they now have up there, we have, a new November update for all your skies. You can learn so much more about that. And as we do other subject matter, not to spend a lot of time on it, I'm so enamored by many of the things of an American exceptionalism. And I just had an interview with a gentleman who wrote a book about a master sergeant that he knew from a group that wasn't supposed to exist at all in the military called Mac Vsog. These were people that actually did amazing things in countries that they shouldn't have been in Vietnam. But the gentleman that he's talking about in this book, a master sergeant, was actually the person that Francis Ford Coppola utilized as Colonel Kurtz, and we know that Marlon Brando played that part in Apocalypse Now. So that's an interesting interview, all in what? In support of America's military, talking American exceptionalism as we approach veterans. Wow, that's great. That is great. All right, let me try and get as many of these calls in as we can here. Mark is in Connecticut. Hi, Mark. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We're hanging in there, Mark. What's your question? Yeah, I heard a story a few years back about a asteroid that's hurtling toward Earth, and it's supposed to arrive on Friday the 13th in April of, I think, 2029. It might be 2027. Uh, that And supposedly it was called uh, Apophis or uh, yes. some weird name. I could, couldn't remember mm-hmm. the name. Is there any yes, truth behind right. it, and what's the story? Mark, you're right on measure. It's actually an asteroid called Apophis. You can call it Apophis. Either way is fine by me. It's named in honor of the Egyptian war god. And it's an object over a mile in diameter that is going to have an encounter with the Earth, as we talked about, in April the 13th, 2029. 
And this object, depending on where you're on the Earth, Mark, you'd be able to see the thing going across the sky at night, not as a very bright star, but to see an object that's curdling toward the Earth. But here's the weird part. It's actually going, I'll say this twice, it's actually going to come in closer than the geosynchronous satellites, closer than the geosynchronous satellites that are only 22,000 miles above the Earth. Now, it gets more interesting, Mark. If that object, the Pulphus, moves into an area called the gravity keyhole, it's like this little area of gravity instability that's out there, you know, talk to the celestial mechanics people. And if it goes into that central core of that, it may not. It whips around and comes back again in 2037 around the same time around April the 13th. So the advice that we give everybody, Mark, is make sure you have your taxes done, right, <laughs> by that time. But on a serious note, some have said that this is an object that's going to hit and collide the Earth. I doubt it, but I talked to some of the people that really do the calculations, and they say they really doubt it. But watch as it may go into the keyhole. Who knows what could happen? We'll keep you posted. Let, let me also ask you about uh, b- before we run out of time here, Steve. Uh, the yeah. the we cover a lot of uh, subjects related to the possibility of extraterrestrial visits to Earth. Before mm-hmm. I read an article this week, uh, I think it was actually by Miriam Kramer and Axios that yeah. some scientists are concerned that a lot of the more fantastic claims about aliens, and I'm thinking mostly about that gentleman that went to Mexico and revealed yes. what he claims were alien corpses to their Congress, it could undermine the less exciting but incredibly important E.T. discoveries. In the final minute we have, Steve, is that a valid concern in your view? I think it is, but you got to go on the other side on this. This is purely, obviously, my opinion. The more You're never going to stop this stuff. You're going to constantly hear it. I guess the bottom line is, does it take away from the sincerity of a real discovery on this? Well, it just populates the possibility. But I'm going to go with this one. I think it's still important that we keep our minds open, bring it on, and do what? Let the people make up their minds. I love hopefully it. Hopefully our government will give us the answer. I love it. Steve Cates, uh, it is always a pleasure. Let's do this again in two weeks. Check him out on the Dr. Sky Experience. In the meantime, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.